Hi there, it's Elliot. Before we get to the episode, I just wanted to squeeze in a quick mention about the Page Learning Lab, our new online learning program for communications professionals. Page and its members are charting the future of the profession, and the lab gives you access to their thinking, the most progressive thinking out there on topics ranging from ComTech and journey communications to culture change, stakeholder capitalism, business skills, and DE&I. It's tailored learning designed to fit into your busy schedule. For more information, check it out at learning.page.org. Throughout his tenure at Merck, Ken Frazier made it a point to stand up for his principles. One of the most public examples is his decision to step down from then-President Donald Trump's Manufacturing Advisory Council, following Trump's remarks on the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally. Unlike most CEOs, Ken was once his company's CCO. That experience helped prepare him to think multi-stakeholder and pass decisions through the lens of the company's character and values. It also inspired him to always find opportunities to make, quote, good trouble, in the words of John Lewis, to agitate for change where it's needed. At the 2022 Page Spring Seminar, Ken sat down with industry icon and longtime Page member Bill Nielsen to discuss his leadership philosophy, his love for communications, and the role business can play in bettering society. I'm Elliot Mizrahi, and this is the new CCO. You want to be on the left or the I right? I always want to be on the left. <laughs> it's my life story. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Um, I want to tell you what a great pleasure it is to be here in person. I miss seeing all of you uh, so much for uh, such a long time. And uh, this is a very important topic. I've been in this practice for uh, coming up on 60 years. And uh, looking back over history, I don't think there's ever been a time in the history of our uh, profession where the role of the communications person has been so terribly important. And so uh, we wanted to hear um, from an acknowledged authority in uh, business management um, and that's why we invited Ken, and he was so gracious to um, agree to come and be with us uh, today. Now, his bio is, um, I think, accessible to you, and I don't want to take up too much time going through it, but I do want to just mention, for those of you who haven't seen it, that he is executive chairman of Merck's board of directors, and that's a role that began um, in last July. Uh, following his retirement from a decade-long tenure as Merck's president and chief executive officer. Under his leadership, um, Merck has delivered innovative life-saving medicines and vaccines, um, and he's developed long-term sustainable value. He joined the company in 1992 and held positions of increasing responsibility, including general counsel, before becoming president and CEO in 2011. And prior to joining Merck, he practiced law in Philadelphia. He went to Penn State University and got his law degree from Harvard Law School. So Ken, we are absolutely delighted to have you uh, here today with us. Thank you, Bill. In this period of um, historic upheaval in society and business globally, strong, effective organizational leadership is key to managing into the future for business and society. And um, you have stated that you can relate to our theme, this radical relevance and the importance of strategic communications as a business essential. So would you care to comment on that? And do you view the role of the chief communications officer 
as central to business success? So let me start by thanking you, Bill, for inviting me here today and to share with everybody that uh, Bill mentioned that I came from the practice of law in Philadelphia. One of my first jobs at Merck was this job. I tell people it was the most fun and the most fulfilling job that I ever had anywhere. And Bill Nielsen was my mentor. So everything I'm about to say, I learned from Bill. Okay? Um, if he wanted me to have an opinion, he would always give it to me. Um, <laughs> I do think the chief communications officer is an incredibly important uh, position in today's business world. We are living in a world in which never before has business been under the kind of close scrutiny with respect to its performance and with respect to its values as they are today. And I think that the challenge that the chief communications officer has and the single most important thing that you do is to not represent the company to the outside world. It is to help represent the outside world to the company. We CEOs are surrounded by people who tell us how great we are. You know, my jokes were never as funny as they were before I became the CEO. And it's important that there be somebody who's in that room, who's about to challenge me, challenge my perspectives, challenge my executive team's perspective, and help us to understand what our different stakeholders expect of us. It's not easy in a hyper-partisan, hyper-politicized world that we live in. Whatever position you take, or whether you choose not to take a position, you are always going to offend someone. But you need someone who's going to help you understand what it is that you can communicate, and what is it that you can do that is consistent and complementary with the company's core values couldn't be more important than it is right now. So you see the um, CCO as a, a true partner of the CEO and the management mix? Yes, absolutely. So my colleague, Crystal Downing, is over there. She's Merck's chief communications officer. Uh, and I often say to her, your job, and I'm using John Lewis's phrase, is to cause good trouble inside the company. You know, because often when it comes to taking a, a stand on an issue, there are three things that the business people know intuitively. That these are issues that are difficult, they're complicated, and if you take the wrong position, it can cost you from a reputation standpoint and a financial standpoint. So people want to go out on that limb only when they have assurance that it's the right thing for their company over the long term. And I always say data plus transparency equals trust. And so for those of us who can bring, and Richard Edelman has been instrumental in bringing around the trust barometer to give us a lot more data. And of course, we are capable of getting data as it relates to the issues and that, that relate to our business. Um, I think that's really important because otherwise people think, well, that's your opinion. We get into this argument about whether or not the outside world has a particular perspective. Mm -hmm. So that's data plus transparency, I think, equals trust. Well, you have um, been lauded for a transformational leadership both inside and outside of Merck. And you have stated uh, that the important thing about leadership is that it needs to be anchored around principle or principles. And I assume that you're referring to organizational as well as personal principles. Absolutely. Um, 
what have you what have you learned that uh, could could be helpful in terms of the importance of principles uh, in uh, organizations, both for profit and not for profit? So you know, when you are given a position of leadership in an organization, nonprofit or profit, I think one of the most important things for leaders is to be somewhat introspective. And the question I asked myself when I became the CEO of Merck were two questions. Number one, why should Merck people grant me the gift of their followership? And then secondly, why should they share and adopt my dreams, my visions, my ambitions, my goals? When I asked myself those questions, the answer was because I am vindicating a series of values that have been core to Merck for a long time. In other words, I have no right to come to people to tell them what they should think about political issues. I have no right to go to my people and tell them what values we should have as a company. But as long as I'm standing firmly on the values that attracted them to Merck and have caused them to come and remain at Merck, then I've always felt very secure, whether I was talking about an issue inside the company that was hard and there are lots of trade-offs in, inside the company, or whether I was addressing an issue to the outside world. If I felt that I could come back to principles that Merck had always taken and established, then I felt I was on solid ground. Yeah, I think particularly in this time when um, public trust is, you know, in, is at, at zero point and we're trying to uh, reestablish public trust that it starts first with with values and um, that it then becomes performance against those values mm -hmm. that um, people can make uh, judgments but also can uh, become more trusting of, yeah. uh, of, of organization. Bill, you said years ago that the CCO is the conscience of the company. Mm -hmm. And I happen to think that's an important aspect. I don't think, hopefully, you're not the only person of conscience in the company, okay? That's a really uphill climb. But I think there's two things. Number one, as I just finished talking about, the importance of values and principles. But the second thing is this business of conscience. That is, we all have stated values, right? In the United States, we have certain stated values. The question is, are our behaviors consistent with those stated values? That's conscience, it's the conscience that points to our behaviors, our strategies, our words, and says, are those consistent and complementary, what we say we believe in, right? I'm a lawyer, right? So one of the things that I do, I chair the Legal Services Council. I go around and I talk to people about the fact that we have these words on the Supreme Court about equal justice under law. And then you look at how many Americans can't afford to be represented, and they can be thrown out of their houses, they can have their children taken away from them, they can be put into an institution with no representation. How is that consistent? That's the conscience thing that we need to do. We need to make sure that if we say we believe in certain things, is our company behaving consistent with that? And I really think we need to remember that the role of the chief communications officer is probably um, the most horizontal role in Absolutely. an organization, um, you know, probably except for the CEO. But um, I had the privilege of, you know, working for a CEO who really understood that and empowered me uh, to uh, keep uh, uh, looking horizontally uh, 
to judge the conscience all the time of whether or not business performance was consistent with the values that were expressed in, in our credo. And there is a very important role for agencies, Richard, in, in this uh, in, in consulting agreement. And when I took over there, I went to every agency we worked with and I said, you need to understand what our values are and I expect you to be looking at uh, even the furthest, most breaches of our company to see that behavior is consistent. And if you don't, with our values, if you don't see that, you know, you need to be uh, reporting that in to us so that we can do that. I, um, I really think that's an important part of the CCO's uh, job. Obviously, it's not something you can do all by yourself, but you need to empower people on staff who are able to do that. I think that that was part of your culture as well at, 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 at Merck in, in guarding behavior. Um, I agree. I think we should ask some of the hard questions, though. I mean, the, the question a few minutes ago about, well, what do you do if your management doesn't agree with the position? That's the challenge at the end of the day, whether the management agrees with it substantively or whether the management is saying, I don't want to stick uh, my neck out on this issue. Those are, the, those are the hard issues inside. And even when you're a CEO, um, which, by the way, is an overrated experience, um, <laughs> Um, you still answer to stakeholders. You answer to your board. Uh, you answer to your customers. You answer to your employees. We've seen that recently where CEOs have been called upon to apologize because they didn't take a position consistent with what their employees thought they ought to take. So these are really hard issues. And that's where having a conversation with a really good chief communications officer helps you know, I've had them save me from myself many times. Yeah. Let's uh, talk a little bit about society in general. Um, survey after survey shows public loss of trust in almost everything. Um, and the degree of polarization on issues such as immigration, um, policing policy, racial equity, gun legislation, health care reform, climate change, and others. Um, is very startling and, and uh, disarming. Um, what are the steps you think we uh, should be considering to bring society back to greater unity? Um, we have seen evidence, Richard Ellman's survey, um, that trust in business is actually growing. And is that an opportunity for us? I really think it is. You know, I, when you look at our society, we are so politically divided today. Most of us, if we think about it, live in enclaves surrounded by people that are like us. As a result, our children, if they go to public schools, generally, or private schools that are proximate, they go to school with people that are not different from them, right? Uh, we go to church or synagogue or, or mosque with people who believe what we believe. And importantly, we can tune into broadcast media or social media where the opinions are exactly the same as ours. And it's a reinforcing mechanism. Business is the last place where people cannot choose to associate only with people who are like them and who believe what they believe. It's the last place. And I think it's important for us in business to recognize the role of business to bring people together. I've taken some positions publicly that have gotten me criticized, but I felt it was really important inside the company 
to actually, for example, withdrawing from the president's uh, business council, it was important for me for, to establish that many of my employees voted for President Trump. And I needed to make sure they understood that I wasn't judging them. I wasn't calling them a bunch of ignoramuses or a bunch of racists. Because I realized that President Trump represented more than his comments about Charlottesville to them. At the same time, I want to be absolutely clear, I could not live staying on that business council after what the president did not say. And so by acknowledging their beliefs, I could therefore say, you need to acknowledge my beliefs. I think the challenge we have in our society is that people on both sides of the spectrum are driving the political discourse in our company. Now, I don't want to bore you, but when I was in college, I had this political science professor who was from Eastern Europe. He's probably dead. His name was Professor Albinsky. And he used to say a thing about American politics is that it's boring because unlike European politics, it's all centrist. That's no longer true about American politics. And so when you take a position on things like voting rights and, you know, we, we had a full page ad, 700 business people. If anybody reads that ad, that ad couldn't be more anodyne. The words in that ad said things like, we should all support democracy. Who doesn't believe in that, right? That if we believe in democracy, we have to believe that we want to make it the right to vote available to all people. Who could have dis But you know what? Calling CEOs, those CEOs really hesitated to sign that. Not because the words were controversial, but they know they were speaking into a world of hyper-partisanship, where those words would be interpreted through the prism of partisan politics. I think it's interesting. The business community in unison has, pretty much in unison, has taken a position about Ukraine. Right? We're prepared to take a stand for democracy and the sovereignty of Ukraine. Some of those same people hesitated to take a position about democracy in the United States. Because, not because democracy in the United States itself is intrinsically controversial, but because we're all speaking into a divided, hyper-partisan world. Did I take up too much time there? No. <laughs> not at all. You've had president and CEO, now executive chairman, general counsel, chief public affairs officer, and I think you've told me that the public affairs job was one of the best. You want to talk a little bit about Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, when I came to the company, I'm a lawyer, uh, not in a pejorative sense of the word, guys. <laughs> um, I wanted to be the general counsel of the company very badly, and the CEO, Roy Vagelis, gave me the chief communications, public policy, government affairs job for my first six years. And then I became the general counsel, and I've said this to you. Yeah, I know. Uh, don't tell my lawyer friends, but the law seemed a little bit flavorless <laughs> after having been on the outside world dealing with these issues. After all, your job is dealing with the critical issues in the company and in society. And so for me, this, this was by far the most interesting, most challenging job that I ever had inside the company. Now, obviously, as a CEO, I had the opportunity to do important things about setting a strategy and allocating capital and making sure the right people were in the right jobs. It was a consequential job. But the chief communications officer, for me, was by far the most enjoyable, intellectually stimulating 
rewarding job because I was outside the four walls of Merck. It was the one job in Merck where I had license to be outside. And I have attention deficit disorder, that's my problem. And so I preferred not sitting through staff meetings. I was out in the outside world where we were bringing drugs to the market, the first drug that actually changed the, the standard of care for HIV it was called Crixidin, you don't need to know about. It. But you know how fascinating it was to deal with the HIV AIDS community when we were developing that drug? I, I could come back and tell my colleagues stories about what it's like to be outside the four walls. Every time I see that movie, uh, The Shawshank Redemption, it makes me think about what it's like to be in a corporation. <laughs> right? Everybody's rooting for the guy to get out of there, even if you do have to crawl through the sewer. <laughs> That's why that job was so great, was because I lived outside and I could come in and translate what I was hearing. Someone said it, well, you have to be on the ground in Florida. You have to understand what that issue is in Florida. Sitting here reading the New York Times will not tell you what that issue is. <laughs> so you've had a lot of experiences as CEO. Um, and in 2017, uh, you actually met with the Pope. Um, how did that come about? And what did he ask you to do? So I did meet with the Pope. It was one, one of the most important things in my life. I, you know, I, I actually used to teach in South Africa, and I had the ability to meet Nelson Mandela. He and the Pope are the most important people that I've ever met in wow. my life because yeah. they transcend the political and religious situation. So this Pope called me to talk to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, this Pope is a Jesuit, and he's a chemist by training. And so he said, you know, I learned from the Merck chemical manual, <laughs> right? Second thing he wanted to talk about is the work that we're doing with the Vatican to provide drugs, essential drugs to people in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And he wanted to help me understand that he's really appreciative of what Merck can do, but we could do more for the least of his children. What he said to me that I'll never forget, he said, as the Pope, I get to preside over the customs and the traditions and the relics of the church, including the naming of the saints, he said. But between us, he said, it's not about who's a saint or who's a sinner. He said, after all, we're all sinners. <laughs> yeah. He said, it's about the difference between the rational and the irrational in our world. And it's the irrational that we need to guard against. And we see that now with what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah. We see a war where President Putin started off by saying, these people are the same. They are Russians. And now you look at what's happening in that country. It's a war against civilians. And I think what the Pope was really trying to say to me is, you now have a position where you can help alleviate suffering. You can't do too much. Yeah, yeah. marvelous. Any questions out there? Uh, hi, Daniel Tish from uh, Toronto. Um, it's a pleasure to uh, to hear you today, uh, Ken. Um, uh, while we haven't met before, um, you've appeared in many presentations that I've given in the last five years <laughs> because of the actions that you just described a few minutes ago um, when you. you stepped down from the former president's uh, council. And you recounted a, a few moments ago the way you handled it after you made the announcement. 
But I think for a lot of people in the room, whether they're agency people like me or CCOs, we'd love even just a perspective, a fly on the wall perspective, if you're able to give us one of what happened before you made the announcement, of whom you, whom you consulted, what that conversation was like, knowing that at the time, I mean, looking back, it seems very easy and very straightforward and the right thing to do. It's hard to be the first mover and you earn so much credit because you were the first mover. So I'd love a little bit of, of that perspective of what happened before. So I did consult people. As I said, the communications people often help save me from myself. Uh, I felt very strongly after I heard those comments um, that I needed to step down. There was no question in my mind that I needed to step down. I have two adult children who were looking at me and saying, what are your values, right? You know, my son came home from college and said, Dad, what's up? What's up, Dad? That's a, that, that passes for searching inquiry for a college student. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I called my chief communications officer and my general counsel and said, I intend to step down. This was on a Saturday. I intend to put out a Twitter, a tweet on Monday morning before the market opens, not only saying I'm stepping down, but I want to articulate my reasons. And we had a debate about whether I should have a quiet withdrawal or a noisy withdrawal. <laughs> and I thought noisy because if, you know, unfortunately for me, I was down at the White House three times and by coincidence, I always was seated next to the president, okay? It was just a coincidence. <laughs> anyway, uh, we decided that we would put a statement out. The second group that I consulted was the Merck board. And I called the board and I said, I intend to step down. This is a matter of personal conscience. I ask you the following. Should I step down by saying it's my personal values or should I invoke the company's values? And I'm very proud to say that they unanimously said, we want you to speak on behalf of Merck too. So I did consult people and I was giving support. Linda Kingman from Chicago. Ken, thanks so much for being here with us today. The last panel talked about ES&G and DE&I, and I wondered if you could talk for just a couple of minutes about the 110 initiative yeah. and your involvement in that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much that for letting me question. do a little commercial. <laughs> uh, you were, we were talking in the last panel about what happened after George Floyd. And um, in the business roundtable and the business council, CEOs were starting to ask questions about what business could do. And let me just frame this for a minute. You know, the thing about American business is that we have the resources, we have the talent, and the opportunity to change our society. And we've done this many, many times. I mean, people around us, we're all holding those little devices in our hands, right? It's changed how we've talked to each other and how we think about the world. Business changes our society. And those CEOs wanted to know, well, what was it that they could do about this challenge? Because the whole country was looking at that, you know, film of what was happening to that person, uh, George Floyd, and saying that really reflects that we need to make some changes in our society. And maybe racial equity is one of the things we needed to address. So people started asking in these councils or these, uh, in these groups, where should business weigh in? And we could do it in the area of Healthcare, we could do it in the area of law enforcement, housing, education, so many areas where there are disparities in our society. And they're not just racial disparities, but many of them have roots in our history, our 
our tangled history around race. And a couple of us said, you know what's in the wheelhouse of American business? Hiring people. So here's a data point. In the 2020 census, 76% of African Americans do not have a four-year college degree. And if you look at across the 65 companies that have joined this coalition called 110, 90% of our jobs require a four-year college degree. So these 65 companies said, what would it be like if we actually challenged ourselves to look carefully at the job requisitions and decide which jobs are really skills-based jobs versus credentials-based jobs? Because as long as you have that four-year requirement, and I'm not saying anybody had ill intent, it is a structural barrier for more than three-quarters of African-Americans to get across that bridge to participate in our economy, to have family-sustaining wages. You know, I'll just tell a quick story if I can. I am the son of a man who had a third-grade education. I was bused from the inner city to, to good schools, and that's why I can sit in this room because I didn't go to my neighborhood schools. The point I want to make about that is that my father, although he had a very humble job, he had dignity. And he showed us what it meant to have a work ethic. And every morning when I would get up and get on to go to, to be bused to school, the thing that I would always, the enduring memory of my childhood is the smell of my father's shaving cream every single morning. And what we're doing with 110 is our pledge is to try through these companies and others, to hire one million African-Americans over the next 10 years who lack a four-year college degree into family-sustained wage jobs. And last year was our first nine months in operation. We hired 25,000 people. So we've changed the lives of those families and those children. And I just want to say before I close, the thing about addressing structural barriers for one group is that it addresses it for everybody. When these companies look at their job recs in the context of 110, they can't go back to where they were before anyway. If you, if you look at those cutouts in the curbs in Manhattan or Brooklyn for people who have wheelchairs to give them access, watch, stand there and watch who uses them. Able-bodied people with wheeled luggage use them. So every time as a society we eliminate barriers for one group, we eliminate them for everyone. And every time we vindicate our stated creeds as a country, we vindicate ourselves at the same time. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of The New CCO, be sure to check out our latest episodes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We want to hear what you think so that we can keep making this podcast more interesting and valuable to you. To find out more about what's happening at PAGE, please visit us at page.org. Special thanks to Rivet360, our podcast partner, without whose support we simply would not be able to bring this podcast to you. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on The New CCO.